Hola and welcome to Catholic View on this Tuesday evening. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm Sheila Pirsch. Trust you're having a good Valentine's Day, by the way. Coming up in today's broadcast, we talk to Father Smangaliso from the Model Regeneration Movement and we'll be taking a look at some of the topics that have raised up recently. We're looking at the so-called white media, selective news coverage, the so-called fake news and so forth. So we'll be talking a little bit about this later on in the broadcast. But for now, do stay with me as I'm about to bring you up to date with some of the stories that made headlines in the Catholic Church and in Africa. This is Archbishop Buti Tlachale of the Catholic Diocese of Johannesburg. You are listening to Radio Veritas, the good news for a change. In your headlines this Tuesday evening, Pope Francis encourages clergy to preach gospel with courage, prayer, and humility. And Pope also writes preface for abuse victims' book. Good evening once again. I'm Sheila Pirish. In his homily at this Tuesday morning Mass, Pope Francis said that courage, prayer and humility are the traits that distinguish the great heralds who have helped the Church to grow in the world, who have contributed to its missionary character. Taking his inspiration from the liturgy and the example of Saints Cyril and Methodius, the patrons of Europe who are honored today, Pope Francis said there is need of sowers of the word, of missionaries of true heralds to form the people of God, like Cyril and Methodius, good heralds, intrepid brothers and witnesses of God, patrons of Europe who have made Europe stronger. Pope Francis then looked at three personality traits of an envoy who proclaims the word of God. He spoke of the day's first reading with the figures of Paul and Barnabas and of the gospel from St. Luke with the 72 disciples sent out two by two by the Lord. Pope Francis has once again spoken out strongly against the evil of sex abuse perpetrated by clergy and religious. His words come in the preface to a book by a victim of clerical sexual abuse, Daniel Petit, today a husband and a father of six children. Sean Patrick Lovett from Vatican Radio reports. Pope Francis has once again spoken out strongly against the evil of sex abuse perpetrated by clergy and religious. How can a priest, at the service of Christ and of his church, come to cause such evil, he asks. His words come in the preface to a book by a victim of clerical sexual abuse, Daniel Petit, today a husband and father of six children. Despite the sufferings Petit has undergone, writes Pope Francis, he has come to see another face of the church, which has allowed him not to lose hope in men and in God. The Pope notes that Petit has met with his tormentor, the priest who abused him, has taken his hand and forgiven him. The Pope quotes Petit's words, Many people can't understand that I don't hate him, I have forgiven him, and I have built my life on that forgiveness. Pope Francis thanks Petit for his witness, because testimonies such as his, he writes, break down the walls of silence that stifle the scandals and the sufferings and shed light on a terrible area of shadows in the life of the Church. 
Pope Francis, in the preface to the book, also recalls the Church's duty to care for and protect the weakest and the most defenseless, and the duty to show proof of what he calls extreme severity towards priests who betray their mission, and towards their hierarchy, bishops or cardinals who protect them. The Colombian embassy is coordinating with Mali military and police for the safe release of the 56-year-old Franciscan nun who is believed to have been captured by four armed men who turned up in the remote village of the Sahel region, close to the border with Burkina Faso. According to eyewitness accounts, the gang stormed the parish compound, claiming to be jihadists. Sister Gloria was one of four nuns working in Karangasu, southern Mali, and the only one to have been taken hostage. In more African news, peacekeepers in the Central African Republic, CAR, have been deployed to an area near Bambari after halting the advance of a rebel coalition on the eastern town this past weekend. The Blue Helmets, otherwise known as MINUSCA, are serving at the UN mission in that country. Their chief mandate is to protect civilians. MINUSCA has urged the rebel group known as the FPRC and its rival, known as the UPC, to immediately Sees hostilities. Here is UN Deputy Spokesperson Farhan Haq. On Saturday, members of the coalition led by the Front Populaire pour la Renaissance de Centrafrique were approaching Bombari, increasing the threat of violent clashes in the town. The UN mission had no other choice but to stop the advance of the group and the threat it posed, and a helicopter from the UN mission intervened. The mission reports today that UN peacekeepers established a temporary operating base at Tagbara Bridge to prevent further movement of the FPRC coalition towards Bambari. Peacekeepers, including special forces, were also deployed to the area. The UN mission reiterates its call to both the Movement Polunete et la Paix en Centrafrique and the FPRC coalition to immediately cease hostilities and to resolve this dispute through dialogue. A recent deadly attack at a hospital in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, DRC, has been condemned by the UN Humanitarian Affairs Agency's OCHA. The NPEN reports from UN News. The incident occurred last Thursday following intercommunal clashes in Mbayo, located in Manono Territory, Tanganyika Province. Militiamen entered a nearby hospital, killing a patient and his wife. Medical staff also were assaulted, the agency reported. OCHA has strongly condemned what it called this heinous and cowardly attack, recalling that health facilities and medical staff are neutral and impartial and must be protected at all times. Failure to comply with this basic norm would deprive thousands of people from medical assistance that is often vital, the agency stated. Humanitarians are appealing for 1.6 billion U.S. dollars to address what they describe as unprecedented needs in South Sudan. According to U.N. agencies and their locals as well as international partners, the devastating combination of conflict, economic decline, as well as climate shocks has led to a dramatic deterioration in the humanitarian situation in South Sudan. Once again, DN Pen reports from U.N. News. Humanitarian organizations will use the funds to provide life-saving assistance and protection to 5.8 million people across South Sudan this year. Conflict between rival forces, which began in December 2013, has forced 3.4 million citizens to flee their homes. The majority, 1.9 million, are internally displaced, while 1.5 million have crossed the border into neighboring countries. 
Meanwhile, horrendous atrocities have been reported, such as widespread sexual violence, while malnutrition and food insecurity have skyrocketed. Humanitarians warn that thousands in conflict-affected areas are at risk of famine if action is not taken. UN humanitarian coordinator in South Sudan, Eugene Owusu, said, "If we fail to act swiftly, lives may be lost." And finally, the feast of Saint Valentine is being celebrated around the world this 14th of February, not least at the Dublin Church, which houses a number of his relics. Saint Valentine is known as the patron saint of couples in love, and Bishop Dennis Nulty of Kildare and Lachlan on Tuesday blessed an engaged couple at the shrine to the saint at the Carmelite Church of Our Lady of Mount Carmel, known to Dubliners as Whitefriars Street. Bishop Nulty, who is president of Accord, the Irish Catholic Marriage Care Service, on Tuesday also launched the Accord 2016 figures for sacramental marriage preparation and for marriage and relationship counselling. I, Lydia O'Kane, spoke to the bishop about this venerated saint and the importance of marriage preparation in today's world. Every year, a court organises a blessing of an engaged couple, and I will bless Tim and Carol. And the lovely thing is, Carol comes from my diocese; she's from Kilcock Parish. Tim comes from Dublin, and the wedding is in my diocese next year in St Corcoran Church, Kilcock. So, I many reasons to be blessed and looking forward to this wonderful day. But as I say, Lydia, a court have been doing this for many years. And it's a great focus on marriage as a sacrament and its contribution to Irish society. It's also lovely to have the relics of a saint in in Dublin itself, though, isn't it? Of Saint Valentine. It, it is wonderful. The, the, the interesting, as you realise, Lydia, the, the the Irish Episcopal Conference were out on our Limina Apostolorum visit with Pope Francis and the Dicastery uh, heads of the Dicasteries just two weeks ago, and by chance I called into a lovely basilica of Santa Maria in Cosmaden. To discover the skull of Saint Valentine, but I can assure you that the heart of Valentine is in Dublin. His skull may be in Rome. Of course, your involvement—you are your president of Accord. So, looking at the statistics surrounding marriage preparation, how important is it for Irish couples to have this preparation? How important is it for, for the Church that that people have this preparation beforehand for marriage? It, Lydia, it's crucially important in a Morris Leticia. Pope Francis's wonderful exhortation, which indeed is a bestseller in Veritas in our Catholic bookstore here in Ireland, see that he emphasised very strongly the need for solid, good marriage preparation, and he refers to it as remote, immediate, proximate marriage preparation. And what Accord Catholic Marriage Care Service, in some ways, offers is immediate preparation. In other words, the bits and pieces are so important to keep. The life of marriage going today, and it's so wonderful that Accord do it. And our stats show today that we never had as much of demand. Seventeen thousand one hundred and four attended marriage preparation courses with Accord Catholic Marriage Care Service in 2016. That's a huge increase on last year. So, Lydia, we must be doing something very well here and very right to take up this huge and. As president of Accord, I welcome it. What do you think that's driving this along? What people maybe feel feel the It's need? It's an eight and a half percent increase from one year to another, and I think what people are saying: look at Accord Catholic Marriage Care Service offers a very solid course, a nine-hour course, a, a Friday evening, Saturday, sometimes over four different evenings, and it very much sticks to fundamentals. It doesn't mean we don't have to revise what we do in time to come and look and see maybe can we do what we do even better. I think we should never rest on our laurels. But I think 
people getting married will say, look, if they're getting married a bit older as well, they say, we want something that's worthwhile, something that's good, something that's solid. And they seem to come to us and look at, we welcome that as, as an agency of the Catholic Church and the bishops in Ireland, we welcome it warmly that they do indeed come to our accord preparation course. And those were your headlines this Tuesday evening. Thank you once again for joining me on this Tuesday evening, the 14th of February, Valentine's Day. As I mentioned earlier, trust you having a beautiful Valentine's Day. I'm Sheila Pirsch, and you're listening to Catholic View. Coming up next, I'll be talking to Father Smangaliso from the Moral Regeneration Movement, and we'll take a look at the so-called white media, as well as selective news coverage, fake news, propaganda, and investigative journalism amongst mainstream media. Father, it's great to have you back on Radio Veritas in this new year, 2017. It's still fairly a new year. Happy Valentine's Day. Well, uh, in fact, I've just finished writing a little piece on uh, my understanding of uh, St. Valentine and making the point that, uh, according to our hagiographers, there was never such a saint as uh, St. Valentine. <laughs> anyway, let's be ready to... You shouldn't be saying this on air, hey? You're going to pick a lot of cards. <laughs> anyway, that's a story for another day. <laughs> started on such a light note let's uh let's move on to the serious matters now father right you know i've been following the media i've been following uh, news articles i've been following a whole lot of things when it comes to media in south africa and i've come across a couple of question marks eh? one of them for example is if you navigate through the different news channels on national tv you know you you seem to see different news reports for example the so-called white-owned news channels may choose to broadcast news that portrays the black ruling party as incompetent. At the same time, you see other news channels who choose to broadcast more positive news, sometimes news that is not even considered relevant to other channels. For example, Mm -hmm. I'll give you an example of this past weekend, hey? We heard that, um, you know, the the news about the big march organized by the ANC Youth League, for example, against Absa Bank last week, Friday, was broadcast on News 24 as a few hundred participants, while it was actually more than a thousand that had participated on that. And then that was seen as fake news coming from such a big news outlet as News 24. And then at the same time, you hear that other news didn't even mention the fact that there was such a match organized by the ANC Youth League. What What are your thoughts about this uh, in, with regards to the so-called white-owned media and having selective um, news coverage as well as the, the use of fake news, which everyone is talking about? Ooh, that's quite a mouthful. But anyway, uh, let, let's go right back to the uh, really to the fundamentals, um, and the fundamentals uh, by that meaning that the purpose of uh, 
either running a newspaper or, or radio station or TV station and so on, is to inform, to entertain, to educate, to, you know, to do all these things which uh, uh, the media uh, uh, do. Now, in the process of doing that, I think each and every, every uh, owner of uh, a medium must have is also influenced one by the market. Who are the people, the consumers of um, his or her uh, product? Uh, who are the majority of the people who want to read about uh, the economy, read about uh, uh, the uh, international development and what's going on in the world and, uh, and, and so on. Who wants to read about uh, uh, the fashions, the latest fashions and so on, about entertainment, about sport. So that's to, I mean, the people who produce the media and disseminate it, they have to take into account, I think, that uh, reality. Because it wouldn't help, say, for example, to uh, uh, to produce a maiden guardian type of uh, medium for people in the in the bush in the villages whose main interest and focus is probably on other things that probably may be of priority uh, uh, to them. So there is that a uh, reality question of uh, the market. Uh, the people, the audience that you are writing for, which therefore means in our particular uh, situation, given that the, uh, uh, the media is generally owned, controlled, and therefore managed uh, by uh, white-owned enterprises, although, of course, this is also now going to change. There are a lot of uh, blacks now who are very wealthy, who have got uh, big shares also in the, in, in the media. So it's going to change in the sense that uh, it will be more um, a, a question of um, the audience that they are, that they are writing for or they are broadcasting for, but also an attempt to influence people to feel and to think in a particular way. As it is right now, uh, with all the political mess that we are in in this particular country, there are a lot of people who are very concerned about either what needs to be done, who uh, are the sort of people or uh, leaders who would be best placed to turn things around for the good of the country, you know, for or, or, uh, as a whole. But there's also the, the slant, the ideological slant, you know, whether we really. Uh, uh, um, admit that uh, or not, namely that the owners of the media will probably, on the whole, at least at the most by and large, would be people who uh, believe mainly or who are uh, motivated by uh, the capitalist system, you know, by the market system and so on. And therefore they will they want to produce the, the, the stories, the uh, information that directly or indirectly promotes that kind of uh, uh, thinking or uh, ideology. So that's why, therefore, there is an element of truth in saying, in, in talking about the white-owned uh, uh, media. As I say, that, of course, in my opinion, is bound to change with our new 
black millionaires and bourgeoisie and so on, some of whom actually have already bought uh, lots of uh, shares in the existing media, especially your news, uh, your, your print media, and to some extent also in the electronic media. So they also, it's no longer a question now purely of white, nearly white, in, in the color of the skin and, uh, and so on. It would be more a question now of uh, class, a question of people who uh, are in business to make profits, to make money, you know, for themselves and so on, but also to acquire power. And therefore, they will be looking for the kind of leadership, which, of course, on the whole, uh, will ensure stability in the country, will ensure that uh, uh, there is um, uh, the climate for making money, for business, uh, for growing the economy is ideal, you know? Mm-hmm. So, in other words, I'm just saying, pointing out some of these uh, uh, influences, um, directly or indirectly, which tend to make people to jump to the conclusion that, oh, is this a wine-owned media? What actually do you expect? Mm-hmm. And, of course, there's always the suspicion that uh, some of the, the white-owned media uh, are still, in a sense, uh, nostalgic about the past, the, uh, power they used to wield, whether economic power, political power, social power, and so on and so on. But as I say, all these things now since 1994 uh, are changing. So one can no longer just make a blanket statement such as white-owned media, uh, full stop. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably will need to start changing the language and say maybe such and such type of media which promotes such and such a, a, a interest. And then, of course, then uh, uh, opposed to that is the kind of a, a media that is more, call it more progressive, in the sense that is more critical of the uh, uh, existing status quo. Now, whether the status quo is, is uh, managed by a, a black majority um, uh, leaders, or is promoting certain interests which we believe are not always in the best interests of the majority of the people you see, and so on and so on. It's promoting the interests of the few but very powerful uh, forces in, uh, in society. Now, those kinds of uh, uh, media, uh, up to now, I don't think they, in terms of their resources and their power, they are as influential as the predominantly white-owned or capital-owned uh, uh, media. But it's part of the process, I think, of change uh, that is taking place, you know, uh, uh, in the country. Then you have your uh, uh, Southern Cross type. You've got the small media, which is really meant more for a more restricted mm-hmm. kind of uh, audience but an audience with a particular kind of uh, culture, whether that culture being uh, informed by uh, religion, by philosophy, uh, by, uh, you know, all other kinds of um, uh, rather specialized kind of influences and uh, and so on. But those media are more for specialized uh, groups. And in terms of numbers, they are not always as big as your main line mainstream uh, media. So it's quite a a mixed bag of uh, media and their uh, ownership that we are actually talking about. And all of them 
have an interest and therefore is a kind of a, a bias, a slant uh, in the final product that they put out to their market. Mm-hmm. And then, Father, would you say that there's a lack of investigative journalism among mainstream media, for example? Yes. I, I would actually say, myself, maybe the point that needs to be made, that what needs to be emphasized is also ethics in the media. And sometimes you, uh, certain forms of the media give you the impression that uh, all what they are really interested in is to maximize profits and to make sure that they make as uh, much money as they possibly can, even, uh, even if sometimes they have to uh, handle the truth rather carelessly. <laughs> if you see what I mean, oh, yes. as long as the story, you know, the story is there, <laughs> as long as the story is there, and that I think is very important. I remember as moral generation movement, we actually invited. We are still waiting for uh, for the um, what do you call this? Uh, an organization of um, journalists. Mm-hmm. to discuss, to engage with them on the issue of the importance of uh, ethics. And ethics in a very broad sense of the, uh, uh, of the word. Mm-hmm. And I am aware that uh, 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 when they are trained, journalists go through some form of legal training, in one right. form or the other, of ethics and so on. But in practice, uh, that is not always uh, taken not very seriously. Yeah. 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 No, thank you so much for sharing your views and thoughts uh, with concerns uh, to the so-called white media, selective news coverage, fake news, propaganda, etc. No, it's a pleasure. It's always really a pleasure also you know, to get an opportunity to share with other uh, um, fellow South Africans, primarily, of course, your Catholic audiences and the people who listen to the to Radio Veritas. And uh, it's a privilege and an honor. We appreciate that very much. And that brings me up to time. You've been listening to your Tuesday's edition of Catholic View. Thank you so much for listening. Remember that this program is produced and presented by Shayla Birch for Radio Veritas. I'll be back again tomorrow at the same time. Until then, God bless you and ciao, ciao. I'm Shayla Birch.